Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Errol Morris's documentaries are unmistakable. Whether they're about great figures in history or dueling pet cemeteries, they can be uncomfortably intimate. Their subjects' faces are full frame, looking straight at you. Morris told the New Yorker that his core belief is that the truth is out there. But he is a master of the unreliable narrator, of shifting perspectives that only come together slowly. Take his breakthrough project in 1988, The Thin Blue Line. That film, one of the most celebrated documentaries of all time, overturned a murder conviction. Morris allowed all the key witnesses over the course of hours and hours in front of the camera to tangle themselves up in contradictions and ulterior motives. He's one of cinema's most distinctive auteurs. But unlike most of his peers, he seems to have stumbled into filmmaking. After college, Morris sold cable subscriptions. He wrote term papers for money. Then, at 27, all at the same time and in the middle of a PhD in philosophy, Morris fell in love with film noir, met Werner Herzog, and developed a fascination with serial killer Ed Gein. At that moment in his life, if he was going to make something about Gein, a movie seemed like the thing. He never did make the film, but Errol Morris had gotten the documentary bug. He just wishes there were a better word for them. I don't like documentaries, so there. Well, explain that. Explain it? If you care to. Um, it's a strange category. You don't have this in feature filmmaking. The minute you suggest that it's about reality, truth clearly enters the picture. Is what you're seeing true or false? Um, there's a documentary police, of course, but how you deal with truth and falsity is up for grabs. All 
that you have to do is pursue the truth. Um, In your own way. When the Thin Blue Line came out, I had so-called reenactments in the movie. The documentary committee at the Oscars turned the movie off immediately, a movie that was on the top of most critics' list for 1988. Guess what? I don't do reenactments. What amazed me at the time of The Thin Blue Line is I showed scenes of the murder on this desolate road in West Dallas. They were all false. They weren't used to show you what happened. They were used to make you think about what didn't happen. I hate reenactments that are show and tell. Someone says blah, 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 and then you illustrate it. Visual material in a movie, whether it's a documentary or a feature, should take you to some unexpected place. It shouldn't be just illustrating dialogue. What was documentary film in your life? When did you first encounter these films and watch them and where? Uh, my introduction was not to ordinary traditional documentary film, but to whack-out films. They didn't obey the standard rules of documentary at all. They what is a whack-out film? Something that doesn't really do what we imagine documentary to do. In documentary, you're supposed to have an identifiable subject matter. It's about so-and-so, or it's about this issue or that issue. Handheld camera, available light, fly on the wall, blah, blah, and blah. And I never liked any of it. I like documentaries to be stranger, expressionistic. One of my favorites was a film by Bunuel. You call it a surrealist, um, strange documentary, Land Without Bread. Um, Land Without Bread. Land Without Bread is the title. Okay. Yeah, I recommend it. My connection to documentary film, tenuous, probably, like everybody else. Um, and I was in graduate school at Berkeley, and I started compulsively going to movies at a place called the Pacific Film Archive. And I met a young German filmmaker there who was making documentaries, among other films, Werner Herzog. And we went to visit a mass murderer together. It's a good first date. And we went up as faux psychiatrists, Dr. Herzog, his producer, Dr. <laughs> Saxer, Dr. Morris. Um, I met him at a time when I was first doing interviews. The Ed Gein Project. Well, Ed Gein. Gein By the sorry. way, it's not German. Everybody thinks the name is German. It's from the Scottish, not the German. It's Gein. I know if I was a mass murderer, a serial killer, I would always hope people would get my name right. Yeah. We have to give the mass murderers their, their due. When did they, okay, were you commissioned or this was your idea? Yeah, the commission that asked people to interview mass murders approached me one I day. I wanted to make a movie and wanted to commit. No, I wanted to do it. I was planning <clears throat> to write. Why? I was planning to write a PhD thesis on the insanity play. Maybe because insanity interests me. And what better way to examine those issues than to talk to a number of people who pled insanity 
But my point was, you start to interact with this material. What was it that made you want to make it? I, I don't know. Because your life is a kind of, you're kind of a cork in the ocean before you start making films. You're into this and you're into that. Well, I not. still am into this and into that. Why not? Why not be But you made your career as a filmmaker. I guess. Is that what it is? Let me fill in that line in your bank application. Mm -hmm. Occupation filmmaker. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, you're going to go to, uh, you're, you're selling subscriptions. You're, uh, you go to a PhD program at Princeton. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of all over the place. Not in any bad way before you land the plane. Probably in a bad way. <clears throat> well, I'll let you say that. It's in a bad way. In a very bad way. But, so, but when you're in Berkeley uh, uh, and you meet Filmmaking Herzog. saved me. It gave me something to do with myself. Um, my wife very kindly says that my office is a daycare center for myself. Well, I could consider filmmaking in general as a daycare center for myself. It made you what? feel good? I didn't say that. I just said it was a daycare center. You're allergic to feeling good, I take it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not allergic to feeling good. <laughs> Maybe do I just <laughs> don't feel good. Well, now, now, one of the things that I consider all the time is that, you know, because I've produced documentary films and I've produced narrative films and in a narrative film, presumably you have to have some decent writing that at the very least will attract a cast. There's a, a beginning, middle and an end. There might be a story, uh, uh, hopefully or, or, or not, as the case may be, uh, well-crafted characters and so forth. And you've got to lure people to the project where when you make documentary films, which I've always enjoyed, you do whatever the fuck you want to do. And just point the camera at this person. Sometimes they're reluctant. I don't in think show. they're so different, really. You don't, no, tell me why. Well, I don't have to cast Alec Baldwin in order to get the money for my project. Bingo. But getting the money for the project is still not a done deal. It's often difficult. Um, getting people to agree to actually be interviewed can be an almost impossible task. I can think of countless projects where I thought I had people who were going to do the project with me and then it all suddenly fell through. Give uh, me an example of someone that was relatively easy. Was McNamara easy? No. Yeah. McNamara is not easy. <laughs> to uh, book. To uh, cajole. Um, Someone once asked me why I was good at getting people to appear in front of a camera, and I said I learned it from my mother. My mother was an exquisite nag, and I like to think that I am too. Um, McNamara agreed to be interviewed because he thought I was part of a book tour. He wasn't really thinking. And after saying yes, he called me back and said, you know, I've been talking to people about you. And they tell me, this is a very bad idea talking yeah. to you. And for about 20, 25 minutes, explained to me why he wasn't going to do it. And then said, but I said I would do it, so I'll do it. And as a friend of mine later said, well, yeah, I know that story. That's the story of Vietnam. Um, and he came. He said he'd give me five minutes, which is not particularly generous. He saw my interviewing machine, this machine that I used um, to preserve eye contact, the Interatron. Describe that for our listeners. Oh, good God. You don't want this description. It's so fucking boring. Of course people want, people want to know all about your technique. Describe the Interatron. Um, what is it? 
named by my wife because it had the word interview and terror in it. Um, I like eye contact. Right now, we're making eye contact. So what does the device do? It allows you to film an interview and to preserve eye contact, which you can't do otherwise. Otherwise, if we were filming this discussion rather than doing a radio show. You'd have a raking show, angle on me, yeah. You would have a raking angle on you. But what if I wanted to preserve what is happening right now, my looking into Alec Baldwin's eyes and, and you want to say you talk versa. through the camera? Yes. You talk through the camera. It's yeah. two prompters cross-connected. You go to Florida to do Vernon. You go down there, and there's a fascinating element to what was going on in Vernon that you didn't put in the movie about the self-amputees. I'm a failed filmmaker who makes films. I think it's probably the most apt description. I read an article in the New York Times Magazine about an insurance investigator, John J. Healy, some of my best stories come out of the Times. People don't usually think of the Times as a tabloid newspaper, but inside every issue of the Times is excellent tabloid material. So I read about this insurance investigator, and he describes the worst case that he ever worked on, which was a small town in the panhandle of Florida, where there was this extraordinary incidence of insurance fraud. Uh, people suspiciously losing arms and legs, sometimes an arm and a leg, after taking out massive policies on themselves. And it became known in the insurance trade as Nub City. Nub City. The Nub Club, the Nubbies, Nub City, Nub this, Nub you that. Know how many people were doing that, roughly? Dozens, scores, or just a few? Um, dozens. Wow. I think it's contagious. If I were to mutilate myself in this studio, there's a good chance you might follow suit. Right. Like that actor, what's that famous actor who was very good looking through, because, and he was high, I think he was on acid, he was tripping, and he thought he wasn't getting all the interesting character work he wanted. He was probably right. Uh, because he was too beautiful. So he threw acid in his face in Central Park, and, and, and he was wound up being heavily scarred. I'll, I'll look it up. But Please don't do that. <clears throat> let's do a movie about him, and I'll, I'll play him in the reenactment <laughs> footage. But um, the, uh, so Nub City, but you don't put that in the film, correct? There's a problem with documentary. Uh, sometimes I wonder, why in hell are you plying this particular trade? I am under psychiatric supervision, so I've had occasion to professionally address this issue. But often I'll embark on a story which cannot be done as a documentary. Um, and Nub City was the perfect example. Why? It couldn't be done. Why? We'll think about it for a moment, or we'll think about it together. People, people admitting that they committed this crime. There you go. Oh, okay. So I kept investigating. I'm an investigator at heart. I would go around the town talking to nubbies, members of the nub club, other people. And I got beaten up. Now, I sometimes think a person like me should probably be beaten up every single day. But it hasn't happened that often. In why, fact, should you, why should you be? Because I'm impertinent. I ask questions. I'm an annoying person. Why shouldn't I be? In fact, I have to keep my eye out for you that you just jump 
across this table and throttle me. You feel you live in fear of that? Not much. Huh. I wish I'd gotten a degree in psychiatry before we did this. You probably have a degree in psychiatry. Look I kind of do, actually. I kind of do, yeah. But yet you make the movie. Someone gives me money, and <laughs> it's true. I, I, I get it. Someone gives you money, and you better do something. Nothing wrong with a little commerce every now and then. I agree with you. Uh, it's essential. So I made a different movie. What did you make? I made Vernon, Florida, which is a portrait of a lot of people in Vernon, Florida. Vernon, Florida was Nub City. And it's one of my best films, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with Nub City or the Nub Club. And you didn't even sneak in a couple of shots of amputees at the Piggly Wiggly at the checkout counter, none of that. Some limbless guy with there a pair of crutches. There was a bench in front of Civic Hall um, called Dead Pecker Bench, where these old guys <laughs> would s sit all day talking. The Dead Pecker Bench in Nub City. The Boy. Dead Pecker Bench in Nub City. And one of them was an amputee, but here's, I suppose... Sounds this like is, Carl Hyacin to me. <laughs> well, it's better uh, than Carl Hyacin. Uh, the guy did not lose his limb through insurance fraud. It was a genuine accident. Mm -hmm. After you do that film... After I do that film, I'm out of work for a long period of time, and I become a private detective in order to earn a living. Mm -hmm. And... Where did you apply that trade? Do you have to get licensed, I'm assuming? You don't have to get a license. You I worked for a very... You didn't have to pass a psychiatric test to get that license, no? Thankfully, no. Thankfully. And I uh, worked for a guy who's probably one of the best private detectives in the world. And where did I work? I worked in this very obscure place called Manhattan. <laughs> Which is just pristine in terms of people's behavior and their code of ethics. And I mean, what's, what's, what's defined there? You've, and you've, I did big cases. It was, if you open the financial pages of the New York Times, usually there would be one or two of the cases that I was working on. What kind of cases did you work on? Your private eye, were we Wall Street, financial fraud? Exactly. Right. And what did you find? If you can describe, leaving out the... Identifiers. What's one case you worked on? Uh, there was wash trading, um, commodities fraud. Uh, I worked on this huge case involving a rogue trader. There's so many rogue trading stories, but this was one of the first where a rogue trader builds up a position, loses a very large sum of money. In those days, it wasn't so big as it is now. It was roughly a billion and change. But I worked on that case for over a year. What made you decide that that was over? You go back. I mean, we're getting close in the, I don't mean to be so linear here, but in the timeline, we're getting close to the movie that makes your reputation as a filmmaker with Thin Blue Line. I like to think that almost everything I've ever done is out of desperation and some kind of necessity. One does have to earn a living. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, I found commercials. I've directed, this is something to be proud of. I've directed over a thousand of them. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, when I couldn't get any work as a filmmaker, none, uh, I was lucky enough to be offered a private detective job, and I was able to survive. Uh, I sent a proposal to public television for a project I didn't really even want to do. It was to interview a psychiatrist in Dallas, uh, Dr. James Gregson, who had the name Dr. Death. He told me he had lost most of his private patients in psychiatry because they felt nervous confiding their deepest thoughts to someone named Dr. Death. It started to interfere with his business. And his main business became making predictions about future behavior at death penalty trials. So I went down and I interviewed him. I got money. And that was the start of the Thin Blue Lion by accident. It was only at this guy's behest that I started doing death row interviews and discovered this guy named Randall Dale Adams who told me he was innocent. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of two and a half years of investigation. I said to myself... When I started this whole thing, thank God you don't have to be a private detective anymore. And, of course, it's probably the best work I've ever done now, as a detective. I agree. Now, um, slaloming between the creative and the monetary has been a tremendous strain for me as well. I'm going to turn 62 years old in April, and for my 62nd birthday, my wife is giving me another baby. We're having our fifth child. Congratulations. Thank you. So, um being from the five towns on Long Island, I was hoping you would have said Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov. Thank you. I, that means the world to me. So um, I like a good Long Island Mazel Tov. What, what town do you grow up in? Uh, five towns, Hewlett, Long Island. Well, so you're old enough to remember where I bought my suit for my prom, which was Edward Miller's Town and Country in Cedarhurst. Good Lord. Eddie Miller's. I bought my first Yves Saint Laurent three-piece suit there when I was a boy. Do you know the Chinese restaurant in the five towns? <laughs> The Chinese restaurant? Well, there's a number of Chinese, but it's my favorite. Which one? It's called Cho Sen. Chosen. (laughs) That's very funny. That's very funny. But when you're doing this over the arc of a couple of years, you said a couple of years you're doing the work on the uh, Thin Blue Line? Yeah. And you're getting paid? Mm, I was in trouble. Okay. But you felt you see, this is what I find to me. This is the anvil of a career. Sometimes you've tasted this difficulty and worried about money, but there's something about this film that you had to see it through, and then your life changes after this film comes out. Why? I started to believe this guy was innocent, he had been sentenced to death for a crime he didn't commit, sentenced to death for the first degree murder of a Dallas police officer. Well, you If you truly believe in someone's innocence, someone who has been on death row, um, who in all likelihood will never get out of prison, came within a couple of days of being executed, what are you supposed to do? Punt? Hmm. Whatever happened. Stories are sort of like prison cells. And sometimes you get trapped in them and you have to fight your way out. You have to fight your way to some kind of conclusion. Dig a tunnel. Did Emily Miller ever get punished for her perjury? 
this is the chief prosecution witness against Randall Adams mm-hmm. at his capital murder trial. Whatever happened to her? Nothing. She was unpunished. Nothing. And she did commit perjury? Oh, yes. Okay. Filmmaker, crime solver, Errol Morris. Another great documentarian is Dawn Porter, director of Bobby Kennedy for President. It features footage of the attorney general with his family. Porter had worked at ABC News and knew about a trove of unseen tape from the months leading up to RFK's assassination. ABC was just an upstart network trying to make its mark. What do you do? You follow the, like, sexy, good-looking, charismatic candidate. ABC was the most recent. Right. uh, So they're following Kennedy and shooting him, and we had to watch it all. So it was like living in that time and living with Kennedy. The rest of that interview can be found in our archive at heresthething.org. Errol Morris talks about the terrible men he's made movies about coming up. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. 
Recently, filmmaker Eero Morris has become known for his deep dives into the men in suits who lead our country into armed conflict. First was his 2003 Oscar-winning Fog of War, an unsparing and yet human portrait of Johnson's Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. Then came Unknown Knowns in 2013, which gave Iraq War architect Donald Rumsfeld the same treatment. And out now is American Dharma, about the architect of a war of culture and politics, Steve Bannon, who led Donald Trump to victory. But accomplishing this triptych portrait of American power hasn't cured Morris's neurosis. He remains as insecure in his success as he was in 1988, when he leapt from day jobs and rejection to comfort and creative freedom after the thin blue line. Things did change, yes. Right. How'd I still that feel? feel well, I still feel like a pariah. But what why? I don't know. Because you thrive in a place of discomfort. We gotta keep that underdog thing going. Is it an underdog thing? It's a self loathing Whatever. Thing. Then we'll say the Arrow Morris self loathing technique of filmmaking. Is that but you felt like you had to keep that going? Do you hate yourself? Um, I wouldn't say hate, because I'm trying at my age now with my young children to exercise hate, but I do, uh, I'm, 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 I disappoint myself constantly. When I talk to myself, I look at myself across the room and go, oh, Alec. But for you, you, you have this success, and then once you have more options, because in the creative world, when things change, what changes is we can go do more of what we want to do. What's the first thing you want to do once Thin Blue Line becomes a big sensation? What do you want to do next? I was confused what I should do. Uh, and as you become more successful, there are always people out there to tell you what you should do or could do. Um, what was next after Thin Blue Line? I got involved in doing a feature with people that I should never have been in business with. Which was? Robert Redford. What feature? Uh, it was called Dark Wind. Who finally ended up directing it? Me! Oh, you did You did direct Dark Wind. Who did it? I'm the fall guy. Oh, I thought you didn't walk away. No. Call me a coward. They come to you and they want you to make a movie. And did you think to yourself maybe that you just didn't want to do those kinds of movies? You wanted to go back to documentary? You didn't want to be a filmmaker like that. Um, but I did. Finally, I did get an opportunity to work with actors in a series that I did for Netflix called Wormwood. Um, why be polluted by reality? Well... Why be polluted by reality? You were asked, what's the one thing you most strongly believe? Your answer was, there is such a thing as objective truth. But aren't all your movies about subjectivity? Your own films? Do I believe there's a real world out there in which things happen? Do you believe there's an objective truth? Yes. You do. I don't know if we can ever know it. Right. I have often thought that history is about the evasion of history. Cover-ups are endlessly interesting. Evasions are endlessly interesting. It's a route to truth. Truth is never handed over to you as such. Were you pursuing that when you talked to McNamara? Uh, I wanted to learn something about McNamara. I was certainly pursuing it when I was working on the Thin Blue Line in Dallas. Right. That was at the heart of it. Right. You want to answer some fundamental question. Uh, 
And, 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 Did this guy shoot the cop? Right, yes or no? And, right. And, and 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 in that film, the, the falsely accused man, there's an un, there's, it doesn't need to be stated. There's an abundant empathy people have for the guy that's wrongly convicted. What's the idea when you go in the room with McNamara, who I studied assiduously because I played him in a movie? I know you did. Well, and, 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 and McNamara is somebody who, like LBJ and like Nixon, I find it impossible to let them off the hook. When I see Bob Caro, and he's going to write his fifth volume about Johnson, and I want to say, Bob, when are you going to really write the truth about what a monster? I mean, even just imply it that Johnson was. McNamara was a monster. The men who were the engineers of the Vietnam War, I mean, they're among the worst war criminals in history, in human history. The Vietnam War is something we will never get out from under. I agree. We will never get out from under that. And McNamara is largely to blame for that. I mean, he was, he was, he was, you know, he was that velvety Ivy League, uh, you know, monster. He's a monster. You know, when I remember, what's funny is you interview him, and, and, and I just want to share this story really quickly. A friend of mine were at some congressional office, and Kissinger's mother had just died up in Harlem. She'd lived up there for her whole life and was a big community activist up there. She was like 90-something years. And my friend has introduced me. Here's Senator so-and-so, Congressman so-and-so. And as I turn, just out of my field of vision in my blind spot, my friend says, and you know Secretary Kissinger. And I turn and I gasp. Here is Kissinger on par with McNamara, one of the great war criminals of all human history. I didn't know what to say. And I go, I'm very sorry about your mother. <laughs> and he hugged me. He goes, thank you very much for saying this to me. And he hugs me, and I thought, I'm comforting Henry Kissinger. You're suggesting that I don't think he's a war criminal. <laughs> I told his son, I really came to love Robert McNamara. He came to dinner at our home several times. But do I think he's a war criminal? Yes. Uh, I'm not a great believer in redemption. I think the whole idea is a kind of bad idea. After all, I am a Jew. I'm not a Christian. I think you do bad things. They stay bad forever. There ain't a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand hours of community service that's going to erase that, like lifting up the acetate window on a magic slate. Um, Badness stays badness. When you started the project with McNamara and when you ended the project with McNamara, in terms of your own opinion, what was the, the journey? I'm not sure what I thought of him in the beginning. I certainly demonstrated against the war as a young student. Like you, I find the Vietnam War to be a horrible, horrible episode in American history. Um, it's really hard to know. It's hard to know whether the 60s and early 70s were worse than it is now because it seems pretty bad now. Um, at the end of all of it, I came to like McNamara. Uh, Why? Because he was so smart. Um, I enjoyed talking to him. We invited him to dinner. He went to the bathroom and tripped on a rug in our living room, he hit his head on a footstool, opened up this gash in his forehead, was bleeding profusely. My wife and I are 
going crazy. We want to get him to an emergency room immediately. We get coal compresses to put on his forehead, et cetera, et cetera. My wife later says to me, oh, my God, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, if we had killed Robert S. McNamara, we'd be heroes. Yeah, they put a plaque on your house. And now we're... The footstool would be in the Smithsonian. Now we're worried about him. It's one thing to respond to another human being who you become friendly with for whatever reason. Is that is that the danger of what you do where there's a person that's a subject matter, you develop a relationship with them, and does that color the process? Inevitably, it does. Right. No, it's a danger. It's a danger which I believe, maybe this is self-deception on my part, can be overcome. I've interviewed over the years some pretty nasty characters. What would Trump call them? Nasty hombres? Bad hombres, he'd say. I don't think in the case of Robert McNamara, I've lost a perspective on who he is and what he's done. Um, he's a person you could talk to about things. On the other hand, Donald Rumsfeld was a person I never felt that you could talk to really about anything except his self. His legacy. Not even, well, maybe his legacy, but he, um, he radiated a supreme self-satisfaction, yeah. pleased enormously with himself and no what apologies. he has done. Yeah. No apologies, no remorse, no guilt, no nothing. I called him the least Jewish person I'd ever met. No self-hatred, no No, no guilt, introspection. No introspection, no nothing. Nothing, yeah. What year did uh, Fog of War come out? Um, uh, 2002, 2003. So it's right after, because we did the Path to War. We shot it in the fall of 2001. And, 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 and I'm watching Fog of War, and for the love of God, I lean in and I listen. I lean in and I listen. I'm That's like, okay. one of the nicest things anyone's ever said. I, I say, go, I said, Mr. McNamara, go it. You have my attention. Tell me. Tell me, teach me, what, what, what was your perspective? And you could tell, obviously, in the film that he had his regrets. And he's... Interviewing is about listening. It's about creating, in my maybe not so humble view, it's about creating a situation where people want to talk to you, where they want to reveal things to you. Um, it's not about difficult questions. It's not uh, holding people's people. yeah. feet to the fire. I'm not Mike Wallace. It's not Mike Wallace. Um, it's something very, very, very different for me. I'm not saying for I agree. Uh, brand X. But to get to this in terms of then you do Bannon. And I must say, I don't really feel like leaning in and listening to Bannon. I mean, when you say there is such a thing as an objective truth, and I want to think to myself, well, how could the guy at Breitbart ever understand what objective truth is? Breitbart, well, maybe he can't. Right. Look, Breitbart is a lie factory of the highest order. You can have no understanding of objective truth, no interest in objective truth. But guess what? That doesn't mean there isn't such a thing. Right. There's a fact of the matter, going back to the Thin Blue Line, someone shot this Dallas police officer. It's not up for grabs. You put 100 people in a room with 100 different opinions. It doesn't change the underlying reality of what happened, who pulled the trigger, 
and shot the and crap. And what's the underlying reality of the Bannon film? He won, and I think it's really important for us to understand how that happened. People don't want to deal with it. I don't even want to deal with it, although I have dealt with it. People would prefer to see that election in 2016 as conspiracies of one kind or another. Um, to me, it's one of the worst things that's happened in my lifetime. A nightmare that America is still in the middle of. How and why, and I do believe that Bannon was instrumental in putting Trump in the White House. Mm -hmm. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. Or if you prefer, how the fuck did this happen? Mm -hmm. And it's a question that my movie tries to answer. How did you, how did you connect with him? How did you reach out to him? Um, I have uh, this very little-known agent, Ari Emanuel, who oh, yeah. connected me with people who knew Bannon, and as a result, we set up a meeting at the Breitbart Mansion, which is a townhouse very close to the Supreme Court in Washington. And I met Steve, Steve Bannon, and we agreed to make a movie together. What do, you, what, what do you think was his reasoning for making the movie? His main reason was he was a fan of my movies. Mm -hmm. He was at the Telluride Film Festival when I appeared with The Fog of War and Robert S. McNamara. He was in the audience. Um, was I this knew during his movie executive days? The end of his movie executive days, he had become a documentary filmmaker. He made over a dozen documentary films. I've seen all of them. Do I want to admit to this? I think there might be consequent brain damage. Let's and get take out from Chosen and watch them. We'll go out to... We'll take go out them. from Chosen and 10 Bannon films. That sounds like a weekend to me, boy. If that doesn't kill you, nothing will. Was there a good one among them? No. Was there an adequate one among them? They're crazy. What? They're crazy because... They're filled with unbelievable violence. Even if you were a connoisseur of violence, you would find these to be unusually violent. Guillotines, crucifixions, shootings, garrottings, electrocutions. In documentary film. Yeah. They're about how the world is going to hell because we've lost our connection with God. They're films in praise of Ronald Reagan. They might not be exactly, now I don't want to, to suggest something that might be wrong, but I don't believe they would be your cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll be the judge of that, Errol Morris, please. Now, when you sat down with him, describe to me, what is this list of films you, 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 you watched? He had you watch, you had him watch. I asked him about his favorite films. He's a film producer right. and a... And a film lover. Film lover, filmmaker. Um, I asked him about his favorite films. His favorite, favorite film, 12 O'Clock High, which, you know, I've seen thousands of American films. I hadn't seen 12 O'Clock High. Funny, neither had I. Um, the first week of Harvard Business School, what does the entire class watch? 12 o'clock high. 
Gregory Peck's best performance, much better than To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, now. Yes, yes, yes. It's a lot less sappy. And the movie is amazing. It's insane. It's nihilistic. It's dark. What do you have to do in order to win a battle against Nazi Germany? You do what you're told to do, and you do it no matter whether you're going to live or die. You do it because that's a fulfillment of your destiny, your dharma, your duty. Okay, you know, maybe that's what you have to do in order to win a war against fascism. But Bannon uses 12 o'clock high as the model for the 2016 election. So a movie about battling fascism becomes suddenly a story about promoting fascism. Or in their mind, battling the deep state and the entrenched permanent political class in Washington. Remember, he says that, the permanent political class in Washington. It's incredibly ironic, the railing against the deep state, the permanent political class, the party of Davos. This is a guy who went to Harvard Business School, who worked for Goldman Sachs, mm. who gets his money from right-wing fascist billionaires yeah. and is telling you that he is a champion of the people. Right. It's right out of Face in the Crowd, one of my very, very favorite movies. Was he, he wasn't willing to watch that movie with you. I didn't pick these movies at all. He picked them, and we discussed them. Uh, I'm interested in getting inside somebody's head. And how do you even do that? You have to have some kind of strategy. My strategy was movies. Put him in a set which is based on his favorite movie, 12 O'Clock High. Put him right in the Quonset hut where uh, Gregory Peck, General Savage, in the movie, addresses the troops. There he is addressing the troops, kind of, sort of, in my movie. And action. And action. I love this movie. I showed it to a group of journalists at uh, the Neiman Foundation at Harvard. And one of these journalists said, now, you know, this is not how you should interview Stephen Bannon. You know it. Uh, well, guess what? I don't know it. <laughs> and what did they mean? They meant that, that this should have been um, Charlie Rose... Or David Frost. No frills. No Quonset huts. No metaphors. Perfect. No filmmaking. No desire to tease out the unexpected or something that you don't know. Did you? Yes. What's an example of something he said that you thought, there it is? It's the overwhelming feeling that this is not a plan for anything but a plan for destruction. Uh, in the film, at some point, I call Trump the fuck you president because for all those people out there in the world 
who've wanted to say fuck you to their teachers, fuck you to their neighbors, fuck you to their families, fuck you to the state. He's their guy. And Stephen Bannon. Despite all of the populist talk, doing good for the working class, um, preserving jobs for American labor, despite all of that hoo-ha, at the heart of it is something deeply destructive and nasty. Um, there is a destructive anger, I feel, at the heart of almost everything that he says. Um, Trump as well. That's the one thing that does unite them. Wherever the truth was damaged, altered, defaced, Vietnam, the Rand Corporation, Ellsberg, all these seismic events in our life, when people see truth corrupted truth in some way. Truth is never corrupted. Maybe our willingness to pursue the truth because we're burned out and we're also, and I can speak for myself here, we're mm -hmm. scared. Um, there's this shock. I remember people talk about the day where they were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, for those people old enough to remember, like myself. I will never forget the day that Trump was elected president of the United States, uh, when it became clear that he actually was going to win the election. A nightmare. A nightmare that I hope eventually we recover from. Um, and people got angry. It's a really interesting phenomenon. Someone said to me, I don't want to believe this to be true, but alas, I think it is true. People got so angry at this movie and got angry at me for having made the movie that I was attacked. Uh, you know that theory, kill the messenger? It's a good, a good theory. I mean, if you're going to kill someone, the messenger's standing right there. Why not kill him or her? I, um, I receive this anger, and it's as if people don't want to deal with it. They want it just so badly. Please, Mommy, make it go away. And they want to treat it like it's an anomaly. It's an anomaly, or even worse, that it's not even happening. That somehow, if I patiently hide in the closet, that it'll go away. Mommy will fix it. Mommy will see to it that this bad guy is pushed out of office and America is restored to the splendor that it once was. We're in a world of magical thinking today. I mean, Bannon is a, he's a wizard. He's a wizard. He's a snake oil salesman. He's a very frightening guy. And he won. And he won. I think that's important to remember. And then ask yourself the important question. Do you want him to win again? I most certainly do not. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. After our interview, I realized I still had a couple more questions for Morris. Thank you so much. It's Alec. Thank you so much for taking this phone call. This is not a cold call from some policeman's benevolent association, I hope. It's a call from AT&T. Uh-oh. Years ago, when I kept failing to pay my phone bill, 
phone company was after me. They were hot on my ass. Really? And my stepfather took me aside and said to me, Errol, don't you think it's time you turned yourself into the phone company? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, mm, no, I don't think I want to do that. Well, while I have you, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about collaboration. We wanted to append. Every now and then I think about things I did not do to my satisfaction. And I wanted to talk to you just briefly about collaborations. Because obviously, as a filmmaker, you have fairly steady, uh, you know, there's a couple films you've made with different people. And I just wanted to go through some of these folks. Sure. Now, of course, the first one that comes to mind is Glass. Because yep. I, I downloaded and I watched Fog of War again the other day. And I've rarely, I'm kind of a nut for score and music and how well it fits or how intrusive it is and, and blah, blah, blah. And he composed that original score. You didn't access some material of his. That was original score for the film, correct? I often sat with him at the piano. I've, I've rarely heard score that was more compelling than that score for Fog of War. It was beautiful. And I was wondering, how did you first begin your collaboration with Glass? How did you guys find each other? Well, I had shot most of the Thin Blue Line. I was editing. I was using scratch tracks when you're editing a film music hasn't been written for the film, you need something to edit with. What did I edit with? I edited with Philip Glass, various tracks from music that he had written previously, from Glassworks, from In the Upper Room. It worked so He kept saying, we need to find somebody who can write like Philip Glass. And then there was that, do we want to call it an epiphany? Why not get the dude himself? Right. Well, I'd get Philip. Not so easy. I just kept nagging him and nagging him to see the film, and we set up a screening. He reluctantly came in, looked at the cut of the Thin Blue Line, and immediately said, I'm writing. Wow. Wow. And it was really, really, I mean, we've done many things together now, but it was really interesting collaboration. Um, I remember sitting at the piano with him and at one point, you know, the trouble with this music is it's just not repetitive enough. And he gave me this very funny look and he said, that's a new one. <laughs> but the collaboration worked. I believe we work really, really well together. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Now, now when, he, when you work with someone like that, and I apologize because I should have asked you this earlier, but uh, did you have any background in music? You say you sat at the piano, so you played. And when you're there with him, is he putting forth things and playing selections for you and music, you know, pieces of it for you, and you are just going great, yes? Or do you actually make suggestions to him about what you want in terms of the film's music? I would I mean, I said all kinds of crazy things to him that are probably deeply inappropriate. How so? Why? Well, I remember him playing the main cue for the Thin Blue Line. I said, you know, if you raise that voice up an octave, I think it could be much even two octaves. And he did. And then he said, I think you're right. What's the last project you did with him? Well, we did Fog of War. We did a film to commemorate the 100th anniversary of IBM together. And he 
music for my new series. So it's an ongoing relationship, and I am a fan. I've always been a fan, and I remain a fan. You two had the same music teacher over in France, is that correct? We did. Uh, what, who, who was that teacher? Can you believe that? No, uh, well, I, I guess I can, actually. <laughs> With you, anything's possible, I've learned. <laughs> Nadia Boulanger. Oh, was, it was the Nadia Boulanger. Oh, incredible. The formidable, frightening Nadia Boulanger herself. And you were with her when? Still in high school. It's a thousand years ago. Right, right. No, I understand. Um, one of the other collaborations, I just want to hit some of the key ones here, was Doug Abel, and you just did Fog of War with him. He didn't, you didn't do any other projects with him? I did something you would really, really like, which is a portrait of Rick Rossner, one of the smartest men in the world. What's the name of the film? I think it's called One in a Thousand Million Trillion. Okay. Was it released? It was on television. It was part of a person. It's really one of the strangest and one of the funniest things I've ever done. I'll, I'll look it up. I have this misfortune. No one thinks maybe I can convince you that I'm funny, but it's that Rumsfeld. Did we talk about Rumsfeld? Well, you told me that you thought Rumsfeld was the least... I don't want to say self-disclosive, because that's really not the goal, I guess, when you're talking to people like that, but just the, the, the most uh, uh, obtuse, if that, well, that's I my have word. A version, I have a version of his known, un, unknown, et cetera, et cetera. My version is the known funny. For example, you would be the known funny. Right. I know that you're funny. I find you funny. You constantly say funny things, and there is the known unfunny. We're all familiar with that. <laughs> yes. I would put yeah. Rumsfeld in that category. The known unfunny. The known unfunny. The known deeply unfunny. We'll re-release the film and call it that. Well, let's look at some old footage and see if we can flip that up. Then there's another category, the unknown unfunny, which is a very scary category. It's deeply unfunny, but you don't know it yet. Well, that describes half the things I see on TV. Only half? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying not to be too negative. Okay. If I told the truth about how I felt about, you know, what, much of what's going on out there, I would be... Uh... Aside from this conversation, are you going to work with me? That's the only question I'm interested in. The answer is yes. The answer is fuck yes. Well, I would be pleased to work with you, so we will Think of what we can do. Think of what we can do. Anything you need, anything you need, please don't, don't hesitate to contact me. Now, so, so when you're with Abel and someone like that, I mean, I'm assuming that you're very hands-on at edit, editing. What, what does an editor do for you other than just give you a, an assembly? Uh, they work with me. Right. We talk. We think about what we're doing together. They're a companion. Did you have an editor that you felt you worked really, really closely with? Or you did, did, you I've did had it? fabulous editors. My yeah. editor, as we speak, Stephen Hathaway, here, who was one of the editors on Fog of War, Doug Abel. I've been lucky. I've been lucky with cameramen, with editors, with producers. I've been unlucky, too, but I've, for the most part, been very, very lucky. I mean, have you ever worked with an editor more than once? Of course. You have. Because I look, I look, in the, I look at the uh, you know, IMDb. My current, my current editor, Stephen Hathaway, has been working for me for 20 years. What makes, what makes a good editor? Uh, he's really smart. He has a really good idea of structure and story. And he actually rolls up his sleeves and immediately gets to work. All he lives on are dailies. The only thing 
and it's not clear that I'm really good for anything, but I'm a dailies producer. It's what an editor wants. Please give me more dailies. The um, uh, Ted Baffalukas was your production designer. An amazing, an amazing character. He worked. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Baffalukas work with? Uh, let me look up and see. I Barry he, Levinson. He worked with Levinson, and he. Uh, um, I'm trying to see what else he did. It's a kind of. Um, not that every story isn't a tragic story, properly considered, but one of the most talented people that I have ever met, certainly one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. And he was never really given his due. He should have been directing many, many, many films. He directed one film, got limited distribution, but is a kind of... What film? Called Rockers. Right. What was his wife? Didn't he have a wife in the business? That's what I'm also. He did. Eugenie G- Buffalo. That, that's it. That, 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 Eugenie Buffalo Lucas. Wardrobe. That, yeah. that, that, I worked with her. I worked with her. That, that's the co- the connection I had with him. Was, I remember, yeah. I remember his wife. I remember his wife. Yeah, yeah. We worked. We worked. We worked together for. Uh, um, I think probably something with Demi. Something with Demi. That makes sense. Yeah. Let me ask you just two more here. Robert Chappell. My cameraman that I've worked again and again with. You did a lot with him. Chopsky, who did The Thin Blue Line, who also did Batman Returns. Someone asked me, I was being interviewed for the DGA. They asked me, why are all so dark in The Thin Blue Line? And I thought, what? What are you saying? This is about a murder that occurred on a dark roadway in West Dallas close to midnight, film noir documentary, if anything. Would you ask a film noir director, say you're talking to Jacques Tourneur about Out of the Past, would you say to him, oh, you know, Doshatch is so dark. What What was that about? It's a dark story. It involves a cop killing. Still to this day, the way people see documentary it's as if they don't even see it. They see something other than I want to show them. Eugenie Baffalukas did Miami Blues, the movie that I did. That, she that did Demi, indeed. That Demi produced and, uh, uh, and George Armitage directed. And, and then she it's did a Gross Point Blank. Well, it's a good movie. It's a loopy movie, but I, and I, but I had a good time. Yeah, George did Gross Point Blank with... Uh, um, sure. And let's not forget the guy that I work now, uh, who's my DP, uh, Igor Martinovich, who is just... Kind of fabulous. He did Wormwood. He did American Dharma. He's doing my new series. You're not the best I've seen, but you're up there in terms of this game you play where you just, you know people love you and admire you. And you do what I do. And, I mean, the Irish, maybe the Jews are like the Irish where it's like, let's just get this over with. That's my theory <laughs> of, of life. I mean, we know it's going to end. The Irish way of living is, let's yeah, just okay, get this over next? with. We know how it's going to end. Let's just cut to the ending. Maybe we can be in a nursing home together. Well, I always told my wife, literally, I said, when I die, if I could, maybe you, you could shoot this movie. It would be great. You and all your gang. Philip Glass could do the music. It would be so compelling. I said to my wife, if I found that I'm going to die, if I had a terminal illness, we're going to film it all. We're going to film, you know, the doctor's going to say, I think you need to come in and see me as soon as possible. Boom, we get the cameras ready, we go in, he says, you have cancer. And we find that I'm sick, and by the end, I'm in the bed, 
and we do split screen, and you kind of see a camera, like, kind of, like, no, raking over my face, a little little light coming through the window. But you see the monitor at the foot of the bed and the other split screen. So when I flatline and I'm dead, the moment I die, it's on camera. We film the moment. I just go. You know that Timothy Leary did just that. Did he really? Yep. He filmed the, the moment of his death. He filmed the whole week episode of his dropping dead, yes. And, and was anything ever done with it? Did, did it come out? You mean at your local multiplex? Yeah, no, is it a blockbuster? Is it available? <laughs> yes. It's available where? It's like everything else. Internet. It's on YouTube. <laughs> it's on YouTube. Of course it's on YouTube. What isn't on YouTube? Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Let's make a movie about that. I'll play Leary. No, you don't want to do a narrative film. What do I you am want to... doing a narrative film. Then Fuck. let's do it. Na- All right. Let's do, do me a favor. I always say the same thing. Just, but let me finish my question. Representation. Have you ever agents, managers, has anybody ever helped guide your career and open doors for you? Or are you, like most people I know who are extraordinarily talented, you just get the work yourself. It all just comes to you yourself. I have perhaps the most powerful agent in the business. I can't really recall what he's done for me. (laughs) Yeah. My agent would say to me, I want you to read this script. And he would start to describe the merits of the film. And I would say, no, 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 don't, don't, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I said, you're an air traffic controller. You just land the plane and make sure there's plenty of peanuts and, and Diet Coke on board, and then we take off again. I said, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not interested in your creative interpretation of the material. Just land the plane. There was a terrible crash at San Francisco International Airport. Some plane came in from, I believe it was Korea, and they crashed um, people were killed horribly. And very shortly after that, I flew into San Francisco. And as I'm getting off the plane, I looked at the pilot and said, thank you for not hitting the seawall. It was a very strange look, but I thought it was appropriate. Yeah. Thank you for landing the plane. Well, let me just say this to you. I'm going to find out how I can email your office. I don't want your personal contacts, but I'll get like a, an assistant, an office email, something that's appropriate. And I'm, I'm going to make you so sorry that you mentioned working with me. So I'm just going to keep pulsing you and pinging you and driving you insane until you let me come. I'll play a cab driver. I'll play a, 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 a sommelier. I don't give a shit how small it is. I just want to shoot something with you. I have trouble driving me insane because I'm already there. Well, we're going to drive you further down the the coal mine, down the well of insanity. All right, many thanks to you. I wanted to put this in there about collaborations with you. That's very important. Okay, and thank you for doing this. People responded to it. What's the word? Favorably. I I can't tell you how many people have said something to me. People come up to me all the time and they'll go, and the more unusual, if it's somebody that we know is on a tour and, you know, somebody who's selling a book or what have you, we don't object to that. I mean, that's a part of the business. But I have had so many people say to me how much they love this interview with you. You have many, 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 many admirers out there. Many. Well, I am on a tour. I'm on a tour to nowhere. I want to go on that tour with you. Let me come on tour with you. Oh, we'll go on tour together. All right. Have a lovely day, and thank you. Okay. Adios. Take care. Bye. We're on a tour to nowhere together. Errol Morris, the director of the Steve Bannon portrait, American Dharma. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. 
Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.